Welcome on board the leadership of fools. We are about to climb up into the crow's nest and try to find some business dilemmas for us to discuss. It's a good day for sailing. Today's episode considers the question, what might leaders and teams learn from being in a band? We explore role clarity, power of rehearsal, being proud of being organised and disciplined, learning to let go, and we fanboy out on Poor Kelly, Midnight Oil, Dandy Warhols, Crowded House, and The Lonely Planet Band. Today's guests, Nigel Dalton and Ashley Naylor. Nigel is a chief inventor at REA Group, a leader of the Agile movement and a passionate garage musician. Ashley Naylor is one of Australia's rock legends, a creative force behind the band Even, and a band member for Rock Quiz and Paul Cully. Welcome on board the Leadership of Fools. The water is calm, the bay is clean, and there's a nice tune floating on the breeze as we set sail here today. We've got a feisty crew and uh, a kind of a special episode. I'd say we're, uh, we're breaking free of our normal routine, uh, and we are getting a little bit more musical here today, just to see what we can learn from this side of the world. Um, and joining me, as always, to, uh, to keep this musical episode afloat, it's Colin Beatty. Delighted to be here, Rick. And it feels like a bit of a sea shanty type of day. Yeah, we've always got a bit of a sea shanty in our souls, but um, we're going to explore music even beyond the shanty today, uh, Colin. We are, we're going to find out what, what music lives within us all. Um, and to start us off, just to get you warmed up, Colin, what is uh, a favourite music memory you've got? So, in keeping with my tradition of revisiting my uh, hometown, which is Swan Hill on, on the Murray River in country Victoria, in the year 1987, mm-hmm. uh, the band Midnight Oil uh, actually decided to visit Swan Hill and perform at the Oasis Hotel. Oh, where memories uh, are made. Where memories are made in the nightclub part of the o- Oasis. Yep. And um, to cut a, quite a long story short, uh, myself and about six others of my mates actually got front row, oh. not in the sense that we were seated, but we actually stood on the stage or, or next to the stage, touched the stage. Mm-hmm. When Peter Garrett came out to do his opening piece, including the moves, yep. he happened to... Um, I, kind of, I know this is audio, but it's he's all right. doing the... You show us. How, I mean, people yeah. can imagine the sort imagine, of yeah. Peter Garrett moves you're doing right now. Yes, right. And he happened to uh, slash the nose of my um, friend, Matt. Wow. And Matt ended up with quite a large cut. Didn't need stitches. Yeah. But Matt decided not to clean up that cut for no. the next 48 hours. Having Peter Garrett's DNA yeah. within. That's exciting. It was a different time, though, these it's days. that time. You'd see Peter Garrett in court, wouldn't you? You'd be <laughs> like, well, it's my payday. Peter Garrett just slashed my face. I'm rich now. That's great. Uh, but back in those days, you're just like, never washing this wound again. Uh, this is the best anecdote that uh, uh, I'm ever going to have. Yes. Uh, amazing. So, in many ways, you were standing next to a good anecdote. Uh, <laughs> Yes, um, true. <laughs> that's good. Well, so Colin, it's the story of your life. It is uh, a story. A lot of good things, exciting things are happening all around you. Always a, a, a spectator. Yeah. yeah. Uh, the first mate of life. That's Thank what you, you are. Um, and joining me on my right, it's Nigel Dalton. Well, delighted to be here and uh, sort of in that halfway house between a love of music and a love of making things work. So 
Just full of love in general. Music's Absolutely. Just one of the many things you love, Nigel, I can tell by the little I've got a Peter Garrett eye. story. Is a Peter Garrett story yeah, kind, of the, the well, kind of the currency here? We, we, we were just, it was music in general, but I feel like we are narrowing, narrowing it down to what's the favourite Peter Garrett memory you've got? Yeah. Uh, so this comes to me later in life. And uh, so I, I took up music only seven or eight years ago for one or two reasons, not wanting to die, wondering what it was like to be in a band, having harboured that my whole life. And one of my greatest dilemmas of coming back to it is, what do you do on stage when you're in a band and you're mm. playing? You can't just stand there and stare at your shoes, apparently. Or can That's you? not what they paid the 12 <laughs> bucks for. Mm-hmm. And uh, so I do my best. And, and, and for me, the, the guy that I remember visually the most is Peter Garrett. And I think, well, I can do a... He I made a, a statement. Bit, I can be Garrett-esque <laughs> in, on the stage, all mm-hmm. those kind of things. And you're sort of that sort of height. Well, I've well. got a lot more hair, but that's okay. I was just thinking, yep, there's something in that. So you were performing on stage in a band? In a band, oh, Can you yeah. just paint the picture? What was the name of the band? Uh, so it was the Lonely Planet Band. So oh. that was an incredible community of people who had Worked had musical careers Planet. and became writers and tourists and travellers and all that kind of thing. But anyway, afterwards, uh, in the crowd, someone saw me and go, yeah, mate, couldn't work out. Uh, Peter Garrett or the Wiggles? <laughs> I don't think there's anything wrong with a delicious blend of the two. There, that's a hybrid nobody wants to see. Peter Garrett was the bald Wiggle, I think. Oh, yeah, crikey. But no, in terms of uh, musical gigs, I've got to put my favourite down to a bit of a life moment. So I took my then girlfriend, now wife of 30 years, to Hunters and Collectors at the Victoria University uh, in Wellington. And that was back in the days... Up there on the hill? Touring New Zealand with like a, a 12 people. 12, full brass section. Yeah, yeah, great. Small room. Didn't hear a thing for days, but it had been, it actually turned my DNA. Fantastic, fantastic. I'm really worried already, Rick, that we will not talk about organisational oh, we will, connections Colin, at all. Don't you worry. It'll even, just be fanboy No, nah, Even if it's central. just in subtext, I think it'll be <laughs> this whole episode will be driven by organisational wisdom. Right. Um, you might have to dig deep to find it uh, in, in between Peter Garrett anecdotes, but it'll be there. Um, and to give this episode the musical clout that it so desperately needs, we are rounded out by Ashley Naylor. Thanks for having me, gentlemen. Uh, well, my favourite Midnight Oil memory <laughs> is my first ever concert was Midnight Oil. In the Are year. you serious? 1984. I was 14. My cousin was an usher at the Melbourne Sports and Entertainment Centre, mm-hmm. which is... Um, can you say Holden? Can, you say, can we say Holden on air? Yeah, 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 yeah sure. It's now the Holden Centre. <laughs> yeah, right. Well, it's the Holden Centre, the, yeah. you know, the, the HQ of my beloved and Colin's beloved magpies. Anyway, yes. I'm going off topic. Uh, yeah, that was a... My cousin was an usher... Last minute tickets for myself and my brother. My brother was 16, I was 14. And he rang up, you know, um, I've got tickets to Middle where the kids want to go. Of course we want to go. And um, so we were there without parental supervision. Just hoping to get slashed in the face. (laughs) And uh, it was a life-changing concert because I'd never been to a full rock show before and I, I didn't... I'd never experienced a bass, the bass hitting me in the chest like it does sometimes at your first concerts. And it was a physical experience and... An emotional experience, and it's it's had repercussions till to right now, it's still with me. In fact, this morning I saw the advance screening of Midnight Oil 984. So beautiful. How's that for a nice so little we, bow on it? We are yeah. rolling our finger on the pulse. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, so that's a mate. So in many ways, it, it set you on a set you on a path. Set me yeah. on a path, yeah, to realise that. Um, well, at that point in time, I think Midnight Oil were, were kind of a counter, counter-cultural band, even though they were, they were addressing issues which yep. were heavily. Um, dealt with in, in mainstream politics, but it felt like there was an alternate world, mm. and and I wanted to be part of that alternate world. 
Ash, can I get you to tell a little bit more, just a little bit more about your story, knowing that typically on Leadership of Fools, we have people uh, who are in executive roles, leadership roles. That's not the path that you've taken. Uh, You've chosen to be a musician. Yeah. Um, He's a CEO of cool. That's right. (laughs) So music, massive part of your life, and um, you make a living out of it. Yeah, which is, uh, it's, it's kind of bizarre, but it does get back to leadership because um, to draw a sporting reference, being a musician for me, it's like being a member of various teams. I mean, a few teams. I mean, um, you know, very popular touring acts, which, you know, I'm, mm-hmm. I'm a guitar player in, then I'm in my own group, which is a creative outlet, and that's on a much smaller scale. Uh, I think I came to that realisation... Uh, a bit later, maybe in my 30s and early 40s, that it's okay to be organised. It's okay to have your shit together. Mm-hmm. It's okay to not have a manager or a booking agent if you can conduct yourself in the most professional way possible and make yourself almost indispensable. Um, part of that's a bit of ego as well. You want to maintain your role in whatever team you're playing in. Yep. Um, and being a team player in someone else's organisation encourages you to be more of a team player in your own organisation. So my dictatorial days are behind me. <laughs> where I wanted to do everything in my band. I wanted to tell the bass player how to play, the drummer how to play, and the person mixing the record how to mix the record, whereas eased off a bit on that in yeah. my old age. There's not enough time. Or, and know. already there's so many wonderful connections in that story, the, mm-hmm. the art of delegation, letting go. Yeah, like letting go, is, that's been yeah. a big thing for me as yeah. a um, neurotic control freak. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so we've got a, uh, an excellent crew assembled here to discuss all things music and business, uh, how how music can relate to organisations. Oh, look, my favourite Peter Garrett story before we get started was, uh, I guess it was the mid-2000s, uh, uh, it was question time. He raised some very good points about taxation cuts. <laughs> um, it wasn't musical at all, but I could feel the rhythm and the melody under, underpinning his, uh, his political sort of, well, where it was coming from, and I'll never forget it. And... Um, I don't have many musical memories. Um, I think if you if you rearrange the letters from I'm nautical, uh, it says not musical. Um, there's a lot of OCD people out there trying to figure out if that's true. I'll, I'll let you come to your own conclusions. I did it instantaneously, mate. It's like just, I have that brain. It doesn't work. You're like, close but no cigar. You're no S. You're short on S. Oh, Um, But we are going to draw as many parallels as we can here today on the ship between, uh, I guess, what being involved in music, what being in bands, uh, music in general. What can organisations learn from that? What can leaders draw from that? What are the lessons to be be mined from the music scene and being involved in that uh, that realm in general? Um, What do you reckon, Cole? So I'm going to invite Nigel to participate in this early. Uh, Nigel and I... Share, uh, share a number of different, I suspect, values and passions. But one of them, as it relates to organisational life, is to uh, help organisations to learn from fields other than sports and possibly even military and that sense of the performing arts, whether it's uh, improvisation, theatre, storytelling and music, the parallels and connections. So, Nigel, I just want to invite you that that's pretty dear to your heart. And the musical thing is very crystal clear because I'm on the journey of learning that. So I, have, I was a manager for many years and leading teams and all those kind of things. Came to music at Lonely Planet where they had a collective group of amazing people and I learned about hidden talents that people have. So their, their ability to come together as a collective and do charity gigs and, and just 
I realised at that point how many people are turned off by military metaphors and by sporting metaphors. And there's a lovely crossover in sports and music in there, but it's not necessary. I think the only, the loudest ovation I ever got giving a talk at a conference was when I said, I'm not going to use a sporting metaphor today. <laughs> and I talked about bands and... I think being an observer from a naive point of view of the way bands' dynamics work, the way they are terribly organised in most cases, how they deal with conflict, how they deal with hierarchy, and all the hidden elements that I had to learn. Because to the naked eye from the outside, it looks like the band works this way. They're in charge, they're following, and everyone else is paid accordingly. So decoding that and discovering the roles in the moment of a bass player who seems to, in all the bands I've been associated with, devolve down to the best organised, almost conductor of things. I thought the drummer was central. It turns out the bass player was telling the drummer how to stay in and where they were going next. So and maybe, all, a maybe large collective with 16 musicians coming on and off stage at all times. The, mis- actually the mysterious enigma, the organisational structure of bands. And it probably varies from band to band as well. I'm, I'm sure it does, but it, was, it needed organisation and... There was a lot of pushback because some people felt that was unnecessary, killed the moment, killed the mood, all those. But there's an an element of it that I've certainly learned since in all the, the great bands has been there. And it, the simplest things from our world, things like role clarity. Yes. I heard Tim Rogers talk about this at a conference a, a year or so ago. So him being allowed to be him and everyone understanding that that was the rules of his band meant he could turn up as Tim and the others would, you know, the bass player had his, got all the gear there and all arranged the gig and I was just going, there are so many parallels here. And I, I think I'm married to a painter, I'm married to an artist, that's part of our family DNA and I see the, the arts community and the music yep. community, a lot of overlap. So I try to bring that to our place every day and, and a certain amount of it is... So li- to your organisation? Yeah, to, yep. to the REA to group. House. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Uh, the greatest lesson is managing in the moment, managing in the performance on the stage. So music goes through these things of, of rehearsal, practice and performance, in my experience, practice being what you do yourself, rehearsal what you do as a group and performance. Businesses are almost always in performance mode. Yeah, that's There is no true. more beautiful thing to watch than a band managing in the moment. Whether it's a, it's a failure, a string break or... A forgotten chord or otherwise, that's the most elegant thing I've ever seen in my life. Nigel, there's there's a lot in that already. I'm going to lift it up and maybe ask you this directly, Ash. Um, our target audience for this podcast is typically lead, leaders in organisations. Uh, they might be leading teams of people or leading, um, uh, influencing in terms of their knowledge or their content and influencing the marketplace, who does lead within a band? Oh, <laughs> depends, mate. Come on. <laughs> well, I guess it, uh, I think the, the key word from your um, chat then, Nigel, was role clarity. Mm-hmm. I had never heard that expression before, but it's something that should be a neon lights in my brain because... Uh, in, in the group that I'm in, even, we've been together since 1994 and we've been through our 20s, 30s and 40s and two of our guys have just turned 50. So we had a meeting in, our, in the late 90s about what each member would be doing and who would be doing what. And I, I was going to be writing the songs, fronting the band. Yep. The drummer was going to be doing all the artwork. 
contributing 10% of the arrangement of the song, bass player booking all the shows and contributing to 10% of the songs, in which case my bandmates get a 10% cut of my songwriting royalties. So the question, who leads the band? Whoever's got the vision, whoever has the creative vision, and even, that's me, I'm the leader of the band, but that doesn't diminish each member's role. Matt has... Um, his leadership is in, is in his di- diplomacy, managing to... Mm. Uh, work as a uh, mediator between myself and Wally. We, right. have, we have different personalities. Yep. And so Matt, you know, on his point of the triangle, he leads in, in his way and Wally books the shows for the bands and orchestrates a lot of activities. So in his mind, he's leading the band in a, in a logistic level. Yes. But creatively, I think I lead the band. I don't think there's a power struggle, but um, yeah, I would say the short answer is whoever has the creative vision um, in Paul Kelly's band, obviously Paul is the leader of the band and I've learned a lot working alongside Paul for 11 years yep. about what, what leadership actually means. So, like things like? Uh, just what you said before about letting go, um, having a vision and diplomacy. If there's something that's not sounding right, don't address that in front of the whole room. Pull the guitar player inside and maybe say, I'm not sure, I don't think that's working right there. Maybe we just go back to the previous idea. Yeah. And not making a big uh, announcement to the whole group that to, to make you feel um, on the spot, uh, create, uh, instilling confidence in your workmates, if, or if they're a team, in which case Paul's the leader of the Paul Kelly band, uh, giving everyone enough self-confidence to contribute to a recording of a song, yeah. whereby they feel, even though they haven't written the song, as I've just experienced recently with Firewood and Candles, Apple Song of the Year, I contributed a guitar riff to a, a pre-existing song. Yes. So it's an arrangement credit. You don't get a songwriting credit, but it made me feel that I'd contributed to the outcome. Yes. And Paul encourages that. And if there's something that's not working, the way he goes about steering it in the direction he wants is one of his many skills. Right. It's done with um, poise and grace. It's not done with, oh, that sounds shit. Oh, <laughs> come on, man. That's, you know, like, it's just a mindset, you know. Um, don't you love that term, poison grace? Yeah. Imagine, you know, I'm looking at you, Nigel. If organisational life was full of full of poison grace from its leaders, and well, I mean, there's <laughs> other things I would express. The the time I felt most at one about pursuing a central purpose, which is entertaining in in the bands I've been in. Yes. There's a sense of love to it. Mm. You know, you're you're on stage and you're looking at each other and something weird happens when you get in the flow. Now, I spend my life trying to design workplaces and teams where people get into a flow state in their creativity because that's how you solve hard problems. Mm. The most flow I've ever experienced is on stage and I looking I felt like I was looking back on myself going, how is that even happening? Yes. How, the, the, I don't know what the word is, but when all the things join together in parts, you genuinely get more than the sum of the parts. So have you learned how to replicate that? Uh, and knowing, just I'm going to ask that question, but I also know, Rick, you can add to this as both yeah, an expert I, as well. From yeah, very similar in terms of performing improvisation yes. um, and that flow state and the times when it comes easy and the time when it's just a, a grind. And being able to replicate it is, I mean, all you can do is all those things, controlling the controllables and work, making sure you're working your skills off outside the realm of performance so that you're, when you're in the, in the realm of having to deliver, you're in a better state to deliver. Um, but you, sometimes, it, sometimes it's, you can do everything right and you're still not, you can still can't achieve it because the yep. muses are 
fickle mistress who <laughs> 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 sometimes will turn her back on you and leave you alone in the, in the spotlight. <laughs> a, a really clear purpose to what you're doing, I think, counts a lot. So right. our, our band, we were raising money for charity and that's always been the bands I've been involved with and if, it, uh, if it's off that, it's, it's jamming to think about those projects yes. in the future. The fact that involves no money for ourselves, I think, changes the rules. Having some involvement with various friends and other people who are just breaking into or on the edge of music something does seem to happen when money comes on the table to all of the goodwill and collaboration and all those kind of things ash have you ever encountered that yeah it's um i was thinking as you were saying what you were saying i was thinking of personal experience doing charity gigs versus doing gigs where it's a purely commercial transaction you know and in, in my world i have broad range as, as in everyone's you know some things are love jobs some things are uh, money spinners but if you inject the same amount of enthusiasm into each project you don't feel like you're cheating the art form or, or, or the client or whatever um, yeah love I mean our group even we've all had different jobs along the way uh, whilst being members of the band we've never Maybe the late 90s, we had a brief moment in the sun where we all lived off the band. But we've all done other jobs um, to supplement our income from the band. So we've never... Money has never motivated us to make music. So it's been seven years since we d did an album, so yeah. it's not like we're on this cycle of album tour, album tour, because the market in Australia is not big enough to sustain a band like Even mm -hmm. on a you know 12-month basis, let alone a seven-year layoff. Um, <laughs> Yeah, like, you know, if I'm doing a gig and I know that I'm not getting paid, I, I think I've got enough uh, karma points now to know that I've been very fortunate to carve a living out of the music industry. Not not to carve past tense, to be trying to carve a living out of it mm -hmm. at the age of 48. So if I'm playing in my mate's band and I might get 50 bucks petrol money, then that's fine because I'm in there with my eyes open. I know that this is a love job gig. I'm not going to be able to pay the rent with this Can I, Can I just say this? Um, Ash Naylor, sitting next to me on my left, um, was my favourite mu music moment. Can't even speak. Favourite music moment. Non-Peter Garrett related music non moment. Non-Peter Garrett. From the last five years. Yeah. And it was at our, our... The reason we met was at Fairfield Primary School. Uh, both of our... Um, all of our children. Oh, you uh, frequent parent friends. We're, we're, that's what, yes. And you played a gig, which was clearly a, um, a charity gig... And you played Pink Floyd, Comfortably Numb. And I was mesmerised, and the whole crowd was, um, and you were so into it. Well, I'd never played it before. That was my chance to uh, reach the right. mountaintop, the David Gilmore mountaintop. <laughs> right. So that, that was something were, special for you. It was epic for me because I love Pink Floyd, and David Gilmore is one of my all-time favourites, and I rarely get the chance to play that kind of song. Yes. So you got to witness a moment there, Colin. You I were, did. You were right to be impressed because you were seeing something truly uh, moving. Happen. Oh, yeah, and actually, that actually helps to kind of know that. Like, I didn't know that. Yeah, because sometimes yeah. you can just imagine it's just a, a, they're just performing. Like, yes. how into it are they? Like, yeah. the professional musicians. He's, in your mind, he's probably played this song a thousand That's right. times. And, That's right. And it's like, he's doing a great job making us believe that he's loving it yeah. but he truly was and I think that's good to know yeah. well. you can let, be a bit cynical country in life yeah let, let's be let's be honest I was living out of fantasy as well like <laughs> you know to get to play an epic Pink Floyd song like that mm -hmm. it's it's a wish list kind of thing you don't I don't do it in my group because we don't really play Pink Floyd songs and 
the other bands that I play in wouldn't touch that kind of material. So, um, you know, it was a win-win. It was a good night. It was a fundraiser for, for the school. Mm. And I get to let my freak flag fly, you know, which yeah. hopefully every time I go on the stage that happens. Fantastic. <laughs> but thanks, Colin. I, yeah. I didn't realise that... Um, I sort of forgot that was um, last year, wasn't it? Yeah, it was. Yeah. And it was really... It was genuinely moving. Yeah. yeah. It's fantastic. Oh, thanks, man. It's, a, it's a, such an amazing song and... Um, the, the band who play on the night are all school parents and they, they do it for the, like you're saying... That for the love. A, a, a show for the love and you know you're not getting paid to do it, you're doing it because you love playing music. And, yep. and is there an interesting tension in terms of being in a band uh, and as you've, you've touched on the organisation that's needed um, to sort of keep something like that viable and, and running, but when you're, when you're running a business, you can sort of trade on how organised you are as a selling point. Um, like organisations can present how well organised they are and to draw people in. Whereas as, as a band, you've sort of got that tension of that's not the rock star image necessarily to be a well organised functioning unit. So do you sort of kind of have to sometimes hide how well organised you are as people because you've got to present to people that you're laid back and don't care? That's a, a fantastic question. And I was talking about this last night with um, uh, a friend of mine with regards to the band The Dandy Warhols who yep. I'm friends with. Um, they they made a film some years ago called Dig, which was a documentary based on the journey of the Dandy Warhols and the Brian Jonestown Massacre. Two bands operating concurrently. Dandy's a highly functioning, well-adjusted bunch of people. The Jonestown, a dysfunctional, anarchic hot collective. Hot mess. <laughs> um, and, and the bottom line was that the Dandies were a very, are a very organised band and the people within the band are very professional, although they do... Um, present themselves as a as a not blase but pretty casual group but i've been on tour with them six times throughout australia and i know that at the center of that is a highly organized band who always deliver um and you're right it, it is possibly seen as a um as an uncool thing even though i think i just said last week i made an announcement in the tour event that two words i don't agree with are daggy or cool because mm-hmm. to me it, they don't exist anyway Another topic for another time. Banned yeah. <laughs> um, grey areas. Yeah, so you could say it's uncool to be super organised, but yep. you know, history has shown us <laughs> yep. dot 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 that all the great acts are highly organised. Yeah, or have a central organisation point which construct you know mm. organise everything. So it's like you want you want the people that you're going to be dealing with to know or to know that you're organised and know that they can count on you to deliver what you're going to deliver. But yeah. you sort of want the public or the people who are consuming the music to have a image of you being uh, casual beyond beyond having to organize i guess or yeah you're <laughs> right yeah exempt exempt from having to worry about that stuff yeah. but i guess that's when when it, you know if you're managed by someone who's highly organized that's a blessing we we were a self-managed band even as a self-managed band almost unmanageable band but s- still self-managed mm. um yeah it at the at the center of every music group there, w- there will be someone um, who is the most organised member of that band? Um, also, as you get older, you, you, it's it's not such a it's, it should be um, something to be proud of, not something to be shy about. Yeah. Um, when I first joined Paul's band in two thousand and seven, um, it, the airport call was eight am. All right. So, an eight am in Paul Kellyland is eight am. <laughs> all right. It's it's not eight oh one. It's seven fifty five. Just to be safe. Yeah. 
<laughs> and I've learnt because the band I'm in, even we were, we were chronic late people. You know, we were like the, we were like three Keith Richards in the band. We just rock yep. up when whenever you felt ready to rock up, and we've missed planes. We've you know in the past, but I've learnt to be, yeah. <laughs> well, you know that you so, just wasted on the young and all yeah. that. So we're talking about. The discipline. The discipline. Yeah, yeah, it's okay to be disciplined. I mean, you have fun, you know, after the show or whatever, but mm. getting to the gig, being there on time and and, and being prepared. Um, another interesting point you made, Nigel, was about um, the performance. Businesses are constantly in performance, you know, whereas with musicians, it's that 45-minute to 90-minute window where you're performing. It's getting to that point where you're in the right state of mind to perform and you're prepared to perform to the best of your ability. And that... that that's something that I'm experiencing now as a middle-aged person. Uh, preparation is key. You know, um. can, I, can I unpack the two aspects of that that makes me think, and I'll ask you this first, Nigel, the, the absence of rehearsal in workplaces um, or the lack of bias towards rehearsal, what do you think the implication of that actually is? I think it, it's a giant lesson the workplaces can, can gain. So people go, oh, that musician lifestyle, it must be so amazing. You're just on stage jazzing it and jamming it. It's only when you get to see a band two nights in a row, which is something you can do if you're slightly obsessive, you appreciate the replication that's going on. And my, my reaction to that was, oh, my God, how do they deal with the repetition of that? And Dave Grohl talks about this in his... Um, his biography or that it, that he I think he wrote while well, he certainly did a good job of making out but he talks about how their rhythm is write songs which he does clarity of role they come together and rehearse for eight weeks and they go on the road and do 200 dates and that the thought in our place in our heavily IT digital product people of them doing 200 of the same thing in a row I mean they, they people would just melt at the discipline required to do that. So I think there's a huge amount to learn. Now what we do miss, and I think this is something at Improv is great at doing, is practicing moments. So you just, you dive straight in, and so the end result is far more chaotic. We should practice a team meeting. Yeah. We should practice, you know, this is how they work. And, this is, and then you see how the roles come out and away you go. It doesn't have to be exactly the same every night, and we can, Fact, fact check that with Ashley as to whether how bands do deal with the grind, whether there's an element of change or not. But I, I think everyone practices individually, polishes their skills, read books, do online courses, learn stuff. The missing link is rehearsal. And can it, you got me thinking just then um, because you and I, in fact, one of the first, I'll call it a gig, that you got me involved with at, at your organisation pretty much was unpacking how that team worked. Uh, uh, who played what role, making sense of it, getting some better ways of working together. In a way, it was a form of rehearsal and it was my job to create a safe environment for that and you sort of sponsored that. Um, but it's interesting, like it, such an untapped possibility. Uh, it is. That was, a, that was a really interesting team. So can you imagine a band where they don't all talk to each other? And I'm sure it probably happened in history. <laughs> How does that band turn up to a gig and even play? So we had, well, I was done with that. And it had to be, the communication had to come back in from the start. So the simple rules of improv were the secret weapon for that. Just go, you know what, we can do this together. And we eventually got that, that band performing as, as best we could. 
but yeah, the, the, I mean, the Rolling Stones have had moments where they're not talking to each other, but mm. still touring. Metallica just hire a therapist and just go and make they a do, documentary do. and forty thousand dollars a month if you don't mind. <laughs> Are they the wrong business? So some kind of monster is like a horror story for me in the intersection between business and bands, mm. because if, if that's what you're required to do to make it work, it's it's too squeamish for me. Uh, I, I can no longer watch that movie. It's just too close to life. Yeah, that, it's powerful. Though. The <laughs> other thing that we must also bear in mind with the entertainment industry is. The, the rewards are, are instantaneous for a touring band. Like Dave Grohl might play 200 shows in a, on the trot, but every, every day Dave and the band will be getting instant feedback about their work. Mm. Whereas in certain business, business life, it's not a praise-driven world often. Sometimes you might not get any feedback for weeks or months later or you might get a, a very slight compliment from a colleague or you might get some kind of quantifiable result that things... We did a good job and there's no one around to high five or mm. have a beer with. So with, with the music industry, if I can speak from personal experience, the repetition becomes more bearable based on the fact that there is a, a massive adrenaline rush attached to playing in a live situation that a lot of people in different workforces don't get to experience. Probably like improv, it's, it's exciting, it's like being on a tightrope. Yep. When it works, it works amazingly. When it doesn't work, you have to sort of think on the spot, how can the next thing I do become... Fruitful. Yeah, the entertainment industry is is kind of the, one of those weird ones where you are constantly getting validated. You are constantly like not not many other people in their jobs get applause f- on the daily <laughs> basis for doing just what they're doing. You know what I mean? And that that's a great uh, driver. You mm. know, like for, for someone like myself who was a quite a neurotic obsessive adolescent. Yeah. Just need the sound of applause. Just now I'm a neurotic obsessive, you know, quasi adult. <laughs> <laughs> What's changed? <laughs> Uh, yeah, and I think those bands, I mean, there's famously bands that struggle with the grind and, and, and I think it does come down to no longer valuing that feedback or that validation or no longer seeing each, each crowd as unique uh, but seeing them as one faceless and it all starts to blend in and then the grind becomes meaningless. You're just performing to a faceless and so, so you're not getting any of that validation or not getting anything from it and that's when that grind starts to break down bands and, and their love of doing what they're doing which we've also seen time and time again so i've got a sort of higher purpose to the two combining in my life as i'm very i think strongly and a great deal about you know basically people's well-being in a workplace we we go to work eight to ten hours a day it's half of our waking life and i would say for a huge percentage and the data from engagement surveys globally you know i read recently that 15 percent of american workers are fulfilled by what they do 15 percent 15 percent and the the correlation with mental health is linear so we've seen a decline of that um so in david burns book how to make music he talks about how to make a scene and it's not make a scene as in drama, mm. but we can C- all do that. It's yeah. easy. <laughs> so easy. It talks about and he un- decodes CBGBs in New York and what was going on there and how absolutely cleverly stage managed that was, as a thing, as a place, that gave people who were misfits in life, talking heads, so many people, and so that there were rules around how that scene worked. I want to replicate what I see in the John Curtin Hotel at our annual uh, charity gig, 28th and 29th of June, just a little plug there. (laughs) Uh, I want to see that in my workplace. I want to see that same joy and connection between everyone is there because I just know that is making a better world. 
And do you, I don't know, maybe I'm about to ask the cynical question. Do you think it's really possible, Nigel? Do you think we could touch and feel that or touch and feel that more? Uh, I'm convinced it is actually not that difficult to do, but it requires you to undo all of the rules that you were taught as a middle manager in a modern organisation. Things like? Um, that big design up front and a three-month work program just with your head down and shut up is ever going to work in a volatile and uncertain world. The environment's changing daily. You should have a daily collective get-together. It would, it would be like not talking before you rehearsed. Yeah, and you've, you've shared this before. In fact, on the live pod, podcast you talked about, um, I, that's how you were taught to yeah. think one year ahead, three years ahead, five years ahead. I'm a master of that, that yeah. thing. I had that degree, but like a reformed smoker, I'm now far in the other direction. Which is? At, at just daily rhythms to, and, and connection and, and conversation. And if there was, that's the word I would use in our workplace where we work as a series of small teams. It's 55 small teams of 10 instead of a gigantic set of organisational departments. Every single one of those is a band and they have clear roles and a daily concert you know they're doing a daily gig and they review that the next morning um, over a coffee or otherwise how do we go what worked what didn't work what's puzzling us what should we change and they can review it in the course of it and that that's a whole method of working that's it's got the label of being agile or lean or otherwise but it's actually just replicating so many things that a good band manages now Ten people is a lot. What's the biggest band you've been in, Ashley? Have you been in a, a ten plus? Uh, well, the Rockwiz touring band's quite big. That's like in a, you know an ensemble cast. It's got comedians out the front. It's got musicians on stage, and then guests come and go. Um, Does it get more complicated with that? Is oh, well, it, it gets down to role clarity, yeah. knowing what is expected of you and what what your job is in that in that format. You know, like and listening, surely listening plays a really important role. Crucial, because um, in a Rockwiz show, Julia and Brian are at the front improvising on a topic. It's, you know, obviously there's a script they stick to, but you know, it might be a chance if they should mention Pink Floyd, then I'll jump on a Pink Floyd thing or something. So mm. listening and, and yeah. Being Can you present. use a moment of Pink Floyd? If, we, can't if we don't get the Pink Floyd before <laughs> I'm gone, I'll be very upset. <laughs> We don't need no education. <laughs> yeah, but we do need education. I'm learning a lot today, actually. I, I'm, I'm, I'm really uh, intrigued about things you learned in middle, you know, what middle management was that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So you know what I was going through my brain at that date with my then not wife back in Wellington, New Zealand, and probably about the mid '80s was how on earth? What? Did, how did they get here? Do they have vans? The hunters. Are they, yeah. are they staying in motels? <laughs> the logistics are they staying? behind this yeah. appearance. And like, this yeah. is pre-mobile phones, texting and like organising themselves. How did they all turn up in the same place sober? Well, I guess it's like, you know, to draw a sporting analogy, taking a basketball team or a soccer team on tour. Like, mm. You know, in the pre-digital, pre-internet age, you have an itinerary. Everyone's got their A4-typed sheet, you know, lobby call 8 a.m., Fly to Auckland, fly to Wellington, whatever. Yeah, um, yeah I know it was a rhetorical question, but... It's just another organisational step, isn't what, it? What's <laughs> the biggest improv crew you've ever worked with? Um, oh, it depends. Um, I've done big shows where there's lots of sort of different teams performing, but you're all sort of working towards putting on the show and there's probably like 20 
25 um, people. We've all descended on Sydney for like a national theatre sports show or something like that. And that's a lot of sort of co- that's a lot of logistics going on. There's interstate improvisers all being put up in different places, and you're all coming together for um, you know the tech in the tech rehearsal, and then. Would you ever get nine or ten on stage in improv at the same time? Oh yeah, 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 yeah. No, I, I reckon six to eight's pretty standard if you're doing a any any kind of show. Ten's ten's not out of the ten's not crazy. Uh, that's when there are the rules that are not obvious to most people must come into play. Absolutely, absolutely, and and this is where I'm going to get passionate, and I almost need a midnight oil backing. <laughs> for me. He's gonna throw, I'm going to just gonna, throw stuff to you now. Yeah, the beds are burning right now. <laughs> yes, yes. I'm going to really fire up here. Nigel, um, I am convinced with um, great artists and I think some great artists also are great teachers and that combination is something very special and I'm going to tell you right now we've got two of those people in the room. So... This didn't just come about because I, you know, Ash and I met at primary school, at a primary school. It's because um, every time I chatted with you, I thought, this guy is so incredibly wise. (laughs) The wisdom. wisdom. And the same plays out with you, Rick Brown. Mm -hmm. Um, So funny as all get out, but there's wisdom and insight. And, but almost too much humility for both of them in the sense of, they're not the ones out there doing keynote speaking events about what you can learn from music in the corporate world. Mm. You know? So in a, in a way, it's kind of our job, the two of us, to showcase this. Um, and it is the simple things done beautifully. It really is the simple disciplines done beautifully. Uh, and because they are so simple, I wonder whether people like yourself, Rick and, and Ash, you don't even sort of, you're not even aware of them. You're not even aware of the craft that you've learnt and how important and valuable it could be. Yeah, the whole... I mean, I got taught... I joined the Lonely Planet Band, which was a collective of people. There was... They'd been in uh, Not Drowning, Waving. They'd been in Orange Juice. They'd been in Amazing... And here they are all coming together in later life, having given that up because sleeping in an ice cream van was a shit idea. That sounds amazing. What an ice cream (laughs) van. Yep. So they they all grew up and got top jobs and various things. So here they are deeply experienced taking in a noob into the band to try and do it. So I was taught the rules. So number one was you have to listen and you don't have to play all the time. And I'd just take those into my daily job now as just actually as much as I love to fill vacuums of sound don't and uh, the listening is what makes the band amazing. and that's also the ego of the middle manager too um, and I do say the middle manager in the sense of um, not that they're necessarily more egotistical but they are probably thinking I've got to be the one I've got to be the one saying the most I've got to have the vision I've got to have the idea I reckon the same must happen to musicians though where you feel some immense pressure from time to time to come up with the next song to be the one who counts it in or whatever it is, set list decision on the, on the moment. Is that, do you feel that? Yeah, probably not so much now because um, I'm learning new ways to um, entrust people around me. Is that the right word? Mm, yeah. Uh, to probably by osmosis working with Paul, learning that um, leading a band doesn't mean dictating to your bandmates. It, it's creating an environment where everyone can contribute. I'm still going to backpedal a bit. I, I'm in search of wisdom. I'm very flattered that you put me in the category of someone who has wisdom, but I'm on a quest to become wise. So. 
Yeah, and that's probably half of what I've, like, I've experienced because I think the older we get, we, the more we realise what we don't know. Absolutely. And um, that's, yeah, getting back to uh, what you are saying about on stage, not playing and listening. Like, for me, listening to the hi-hats of the drummer has made me a better guitar player because that's my way of keeping time on stage. And I can't speak for other guitar players, but sometimes we might start a song too slow or too fast. And the, the, the tempo that I think it's in my head, the drummer will check the... Pete from Rockwiz and Paul Kelly's band's got a metronome on stage with a digital um, beep, uh, yeah, a light indicating the beats per minute. <laughs> we were doing, can I do another song? Yeah, oh, please. No, we were doing this song on New Year's <coughs> Eve on ABC, Don't Dream It's Over, um, with Isaiah singing. He says, that's ah, too slow, mate. <laughs> like, on the record, it's... It's only a couple yeah. of BPMs, but... Um, listening, you know, listening to where where it is, and I sometimes get Pete to count me in, or yeah. Matt from even count me in because I need to be, you know, I might have written this song or I might think I think I know how it goes, but it's your and job I th- to I reckon it's bring a me fascinating thing that people could probably study more because that thing where you're exceptionally skilled at what you're doing, you know the song, you're playing the song, you're executing the song as it's uh, as you're hearing it in in but. Fr- in context of how it needs to be, it's not quite right. That's and it just needs a precisely. little tweak yeah. from an outside eye, even though you probably could have kept doing it and at, by, at the end you would have been like, oh, it went all right, but I'm not sure. Well, I, I, yeah. played it, I played it perfect, but yeah. it didn't hit it. And it's a, that outside eye taking a very skilled person who's doing pretty much exactly what they need to do and just adjust those small adjustments that can be made. Yeah, so that was my admiration for our band was there was such variance in skill. And how it came down to was someone would step outside and not conduct, but at least listen and see all the parts and what was going on wrong. So my, the, the classic new era as a new guitarist was, I know how the song goes, I know the chords, and I'm just going to play it and completely forgetting to listen to the drum. Yes. So I, as far as I'm concerned, <laughs> I'm playing it perfectly and with an electric guitar, it's loud enough to be heard that I am so far out. <laughs> Why are they all doing it wrong? It, like the, well, listen, that's the key. Colin hit on it beautifully before, doing the simple things beautifully. And um, as, a, as a musician who, as a teenager, I just wanted to play a million notes a minute. You know, I wanted to be Jimmy Page or mm. Iron Maiden or whatever. As you get older, you realise that it is okay to have gaps. And, and, and it's a massive cliche, but those gaps become crucial, mm. particularly, say, in Paul Kelly's set. People, if I'm playing lead guitar in that set... People come to see a Paul show, they don't want to hear Jimi Hendrix solo over Before Too Long. They want to hear Before Too Long as they know it and love it. So my role in that gig is to play it the way people want to hear it. And every night, try and play it as beautifully... It's a simple part, try and play it as beautifully as possible. And Paul actually runs up to me sometimes and goes, don't fuck it up, don't fuck it up! You know, just (laughs) as a joke. Yeah. um, We were on tour last year um, and I get the chance to say... um, I get the chance to say Hamburg. We were in Hamburg. Oh, nice. <laughs> and uh, there was a club show, you know, a few hundred people. Don't fuck it up. <laughs> you know, I'm, I'm, I'm halfway through the solo and it's going well, yeah. It's going really well. It's going really well. Don't fuck it. <laughs> <laughs> and, this, and, uh, and, and obviously if you're watching the band, you can see me sort of yeah. poker face and Paul whispering something in my ear. And it's like yeah. I'm trying not to piss myself laughing. Yeah, um, there, there is a. I think one of the things I admire is the crafts 
person or the craft of it is yes. something that you come to. And I, in crossovers in our world, I often get advice for career, ask for career advice sure. for people. And yep. particularly I'm going to ask you some any minute now. Yeah. <laughs> uh, particularly those who are musician and, and, and are doing this whole musician work balance. And that's, there's a great book, young uh, Melbourne guy, Fun Employment. And he wrote that a couple of years ago. It's a real eye-opener and a great book about what life as an artist trying to make money is. And I know a number of these kind of people. And it, I think you can have a craft that isn't necessarily music and you can make money in a, I don't know, it could be a call centre. had plenty of those in my workplace and times. But it, it could be working in an IT team. It could be anything. Have that as your professional craft and let that release your other craft here. There are very few people who can going to make money from their craft of music. But when you see it, that like the passion that goes into and the learning and pain of perfecting a musical craft, if people brought 10% of that to their job as a manager or a, any role in an organisation, there would be, would be zero productivity problems mm -hmm. in Australian organisations today. So there's something more driving about learning an instrument, learning a song than there is about work. When, when we had the um, the podcast where we talked about digital transformation, we talked about learning digital is like learning a new language. Um, and I think what you're talking about is any craft, the discipline, the passion, the effort, the dealing with failure, the, the practice, the rehearsal, all of those elements come together yeah. to say if you – we can all do this, whatever this ends up being, you know, the next generation or the next evolution, uh, we can apply some of this already. So it wasn't until I went to music lessons I appreciated with my role as a teacher what the expressions on the faces of the people I were teaching were. And it was pain. Yeah. There's genuine brain pain and physical pain and fingers to learn to play a song. And... It's a, if you can get in touch with that, what's going on in your body and how you're reacting, there's suddenly, oh, now I understand. And organisations don't typically respond well to people through outside of their comfort zones and through any form of pain. Yeah, which is where coaches come in. Yeah. And this is where like Tad and our Lonely Planet Band would walk around the outside and just come up and less subtle than Paul Kelly even and just <laughs> kind of go, okay, stop, just keep listening and, and do this yeah. instead. We, um, we need to find a way – in fact, we've, we're thinking about having a director's cut version of this as well, which, um, which will all make sense uh, for those of you who listen to the extended version. Mm -hmm. But this is kind of like the typical time frame for our conversations like this. But what we love to do is almost uh, land with some takeaways. So those takeaways could be something as simple as something you're now thinking that you weren't thinking at the start of this conversation or something – you could uh, adopt to apply to your own practice or something you think leaders could uh, draw from this conversation. Beautiful. Lead um, us off there. Colin? Uh, so can you come back to me? Yes, Nigel. How many takeaways have you got from I've this I've got one which uh, was in the same team Colin and I were talking about in terms of a team struggling to perform in our place. One of them is a very accomplished musician and it was about getting there are people to bring them whole selves to the to work because in work you have these hats i've got this title i've got this job this is what i do and i had seen him perform uh, his band and they've recorded and he's just like a different person entirely and so it was you know what i'm gonna get 
him to perform in front of the crew. And we're going to have these discovery things about bringing your whole self to work. Because if I could get an ounce of that in the day job, it would transform the team. And that it's the hidden element and the hidden talents that are off, that is often musical art or improv or comedy. You know, my one of the people on my team is a stand-up comedian. Yeah, wow. wow. And uh, you know, that's an incredibly exposing craft to do. So I want her to bring more of that to the day job yes. accordingly. So really, that that's probably just it. Is is like bring the whole self, which has to happen on a stage. Allow that to happen at work as well. And my happy coincidence is that that did happen through music. Yeah, brilliant. Ashley Naylor. Uh, I think this chat has reinforced my current mindset about performing music, and that is preparation. Just personal practice. That's something that I'm only um, concentrating more on now as an older person, is to, it's okay to practice. It's okay to be prepared. Um, what's that boxing quote? Failing to prepare is like preparing to fail. So every night I go out with Paul, I want to make sure that that before too long solo is right there. It's probably like giving a presentation at work or something where you're organised, you've got your thoughts organised, um, you might have a, a running sheet of what to say and what order to say it in. But I think for me, it, it's not something to be embarrassed about being prepared and, and, and going on stage without no question marks floating in your head. Mm. Control the controllables. Very <laughs> AFL-esque. <laughs> uh, Colin? Am I allowed to have three? Mate, there's no limit to how many. No limit? Yeah. If you can give me five, I'll give you ten bucks. Fantastic. So, number one, I am so um, struck by the fact that I was a witness to you playing a song live, perhaps for the first time, uh, with a, a captive audience and witness to... Because um, I noticed how insular you were in that moment, like you were... <laughs> You know, kind of those moments when you see a, a performer into themselves in a way that is not um, is super appealing to an audience, like this means something. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, so I'm still thinking about that. Uh, secondly, and in no way is this to downplay the quality of guests that we have, mm. um, but now I know with conviction we must get Paul Kelly yep. on season two as one of the great leaders, <laughs> uh, and candidly is a hero of the two people at least two people at this I'd pay for tickets to that one you pay for tickets to we that one we are transitioning into a music podcast that's right um, but that's fine that's I'm, right. I'm, I'm on board <laughs> yeah, right um, and thirdly it, this is just if anything renewed my personal passion to not let organisations get away with um, not learning from from amazing artists and crafts um, that could and I think this is what you do super well Nigel you talk, you talk the corporate game in terms of numbers, like 15% of all American workers mm. not being engaged. Like uh, 15% are engaged. So, sorry, That's are engaged. Story of are engaged, sorry. Yeah. So Very important. Colin, so so yeah. we talk about tapping into 5% uh, and the, the difference that could make. And you talk about Australian organisations and productivity. And you talk about, and I love this, um, the organisation you being part of has 15 bands, um, not 550 technicians or uh, you know team members. We've got we've essentially got that number of bands. I, I, I think there's so many great connections here. 
Um, look, my biggest takeaway, it's I can't shake the feeling that Peter Garrett would have made an excellent wiggle. I, I can't, <laughs> I'm hoping if they're ever looking for a new wiggle that perhaps Peter Garrett will be available and we'll do a little guest cameo just to shake uh, the kids of tomorrow up, just so they can see what true movement is all about. Um, I also, I, I can get this sense um, of, of, of organisations and teams in organisations being a band and how useful um, it, it is to have that role clarity and, um, and all working together to create the same thing. But I guess the difference with in organisations is you're often working in isolation. Um, and so you've got to make sure that um, everyone in the band is playing the same song because yeah. um, there's no point executing your executables um, if uh, when we put the, the mix together, everyone's got four different songs going at the one time. There's no way we can mix that in post. Uh, it's not going <laughs> to... It's yeah, not going to sound great. Not going to work. Um, so Can't polish you a turd, as we say in the biz. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> and wrap it in tinfoil, but it's still a turd. And Rick, before you officially sign off, for those of you who would be interested in the director's cut, we're going to get Ash to teach Nigel a song. So um, that would be we're the reason see, to listen on. We're going to see leadership in action. Yeah, that's uh, right. Right here on the leadership of fools. Um, I call it sharing. I call it sharing information. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but for those who are jumping overboard right now, enjoy the swim. Before our mentoring hits, a shout out. First of all for Ashley and his band Even. They have a new album out on May 16, Saturn Returns. Check out even.com.au for more details. Nigel would also like to promote a gig. Uh, this time it's supporting the kids in tech charity, Flying Robot School. It is the annual digital industry battle of the Agile bands. It's June 28 and 29, and it's worth checking out the web for details. So today's episode, we've renamed Poise and Grace. Three mentoring hits. First of all, getting the simple things right requires rehearsal. We do not allow enough rehearsal time in the workplace. We cannot master our craft without rehearsal. Number two, the simple yet powerful concepts such as role clarity and delegation apply just as much to artistic endeavors as they do to management don't underestimate their importance. And thirdly, a musician can repeat the same set over 100 times with passion, excellence and artistry, especially with the applause of a crowd. Without positive feedback in a workplace, it is hard to do it twice. The Leadership of Fools is gathering momentum. If you want to get on board, feel free to jump onto iTunes to subscribe. That way you'll be up to date with all the latest episodes. And if you're enjoying them, rate us with all them stars.